And thank you, too, for pulling out your Bibles right now as we get ready to get into the Word together. Would you grab a Bible and open to the book of Isaiah? If you don't have a Bible or you didn't bring a Bible, raise your hand, and the ushers are coming down the aisles now. Or perhaps you don't own a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you could take that Bible home as your gift. We're continuing um, in the book of Isaiah, and I'll have you open to Isaiah chapter 49 this morning. To get us started... I want to share with you a truth about the book of Isaiah that is really important. I hope you'll consider this with me this morning. It goes like this. Your courage as a Christian hangs on how clearly you see Jesus in the book of Isaiah. Does that sound like a big statement? I believe that statement with all of my heart as your pastor. Your courage as a Christian literally hangs on how clearly you see Jesus in the book of Isaiah. And in fact, I'm going to even get more specific. Your courage as a Christian hangs on how clearly you see Jesus in Isaiah chapter 49. Isaiah 49 is the second of four poems or what we call servant songs in this book. There are four of them. We studied the first one last week, Pastor Christopher, in Isaiah 42. The second one is Isaiah 49, which is our text today. The third little song or poem is Isaiah 50. And then the one that most Christians are familiar with is Isaiah 53, the famous servant song, which is where we're headed. That's our destination in this series. It'll take us right up to Good Friday. And God actually commanded Isaiah to write these four songs, these servant songs, because he knew that his people were in exile and they needed courage. And so he commanded his prophet Isaiah to write about this mysterious divine character who would deliver Israel, and he, he commanded Isaiah, write this because this is going to be the antidote to a life that lacks courage, for people who are feeling intimidated, for people who have lost hope and they need courage. They need to see something, and they need to see it clearly, a vision of a servant who will deliver them. Can I ask you a question this morning as you've come in? Do you need courage today in your Christian life? Now, the kind of courage that I'm going to talk about this morning is not a worldly confidence. I am not talking about confidence in a worldly kind of way. Lots of people that I know are confident because of worldly types of things, their resources or their acumen or their intelligence or worldly types of values. This is not what I'm talking about. I've met, I've met Christians who are very confident in a worldly way, but when it comes to their faith in Jesus, suddenly they become very sheepish, almost skittish and intimidated. I call them Chihuahua Christians, all right? <laughs> you know those? It's like, ah, you're always, and your tail's kind of between your legs, right? Okay? But then I, I know Christians who, who 
at first glance, they seem very mild and sheepish, but you get them in a setting where there's an opportunity to honor Jesus or represent Jesus, and suddenly they become extremely courageous and bold. It's not arrogance. It's, it's a unique kind of courage. I think of my friend, Gary Brashears. He's a professor at Western Seminary. If you know Gary, and many people do, when you meet Gary, on, on, on first sort of account, he's, he's very mild and gentle and humble, unassuming. But you get Gary Brashears in a theology classroom, and suddenly, or, or in a ministry setting, he's incredibly bold. We call him the bulldog of Western Seminary, all right? He's like a bulldog, okay? How about you? How about you? Is there a place in your Christian life right now where for some reason you find you're just really intimidated? It feels scary to stand for Christ and you think, oh, I need courage today. I need whatever Isaiah is dishing up. I need it this morning. A situation where you've been frightened to stand for Jesus and you need courage. Can I tell you something? I think that this morning God wants to turn chihuahuas into bulldogs. <laughs> and he wants to do it using Isaiah 49. Will you look at it with me? We only have seven verses today, but we won't even be able to unpack these seven. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. You read along on the printed page. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Okay, amazing, amazing passage. Did you notice that in Isaiah 49, we have been invited into the secret council of the triune God. I don't know if you noticed this. These seven verses record a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And they're talking to one another 
before the foundations of the world about Jesus' mission to take truth and light and salvation to the corners of the globe. So they're, they're, they're saying things to one another. Did you notice this? Many of the verses start with, and he said, verse three, and he said to me, the Lord said to me, you are my servant. And verse four, but I said, I have labored in vain. Verse five, and the Lord says, verse six, he says, the father saying things to the son, the son, the servant is saying things to the father. And in the midst of this conversation, what happens is that three I want to call them images or word pictures come into focus about the identity of the son. And these three word pictures are extremely graphic. They're very descriptive and we need them because our courage hangs on how well we understand them. You probably noticed these three images. I made a slide to show you what they are. The first one, the first image of the servant, it's an image of a mouth like a sharp sword. You see that in verse two? So there's this, a mouth like a sharp sword. And the second image is a light for the nations in verse six. And the third image, an interesting one, which we'll talk about near the end, is this deeply despised servant or slave of rulers. And Isaiah says, you take those three, you put them together, and if you get this, if you get this vision of Christ, you, you will walk out of here with your shoulders up and your chest full of courage. And God wants to do that this morning in your life. He wants to give you courage today. So I want to walk through each of these, unpack them a little bit, and at the end, we'll take communion. The third one, we'll, you'll see how it will lead us right to the Lord's table this morning. In, in verse 2, the servant is described in this way. His mouth is depicted as a sharp sword. Did you see that? Just look at your Bible. He actually says, God made my mouth like a sharp sword. It's very graphic. It's very unexpected. You can imagine it. Imagine how interesting you see this image of, of a person. He's a servant of the Lord, but as you look more closely, there's a sharp sword in the place of his mouth, coming out of his mouth. How graphic that is, right? How unexpected. You would expect a sword to be in his hand, but it's not in his hand. It's, it's coming out of his mouth. Why would the servant have a sword for a mouth? What does it mean? The servant of the Lord has a weapon, only one. His weapon is his words. His weapon is the word of God. And unlike Cyrus, who will actually conquer with real literal weapons of iron and wood, the servant of the Lord conquers in a different way. Accomplishes God's purposes not by force, but by a revelation of God's word. His mission is to communicate. His mission is to reveal the heart of God, the truth of God, the purpose of God. That's how the servant succeeds. Now, perhaps God could have chosen a different metaphor. He could have chosen a, a, a pen coming out of the servant's mouth or a trumpet, right? 
but that would not be anywhere near as awesome as a sword, okay? The sword is a symbol of power and authority and truth. River West, when the truth of God is communicated in our world, things happen, things change. Hearts are transformed by the power of God's word. It's powerful, like a sword. Did you know that your confidence as a Christian is intimately connected with your confidence in the authority of God's word? Did you know that? It rises and falls on how confident you are in the authority of God's word. This image shows up all over the Bible, all over the New Testament. I want to show you just two places. We actually leave Isaiah and go with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. We're going to come back to Isaiah in a minute. Isaiah chapter, or Revelation chapter 1. I want to show you how the image of a sword coming out of the mouth of the servant gives a Christian courage. And the place to go is the book of Revelation, the island of Patmos, where the apostle John has been exiled. Revelation 1, starting in verse 9. Here's what John said. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This is the apostle John. This is the disciple that Jesus loved. He wrote the gospel of John, which you may remember begins with, in the beginning was the word, the uppercase word, the logos, who was with God in the beginning. So right out of the gate, John describes Jesus Christ as the living word, the incarnate word of God. This same John had been exiled to the island of Patmos, and he tells us why he had been exiled there, because of his Christian faith. His testimony of faith had got him in trouble, and he found himself thrown aside, cast aside, alone on an island, and he needed courage. He needed God to give him some courage, and so what did God do? God gave him a vision of a conquering king with a sword coming out of his mouth. Will you look at it with me? Starting in verse 10, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And he names the churches. And then verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John falls on his knees. But it's because he's been so filled with courage, he worships this this one. And we get this image. Did you see it? 
His mouth came like a sharp two-edged sword. John gives us one more detail about this sword. It's, it's sharp in a two-edged kind of way. The point is to emphasize every single edge of the sword is sharp. The word, the word of the servant, like a, like a sharp sword, it's not a blunt instrument. It's extremely precise. God uses it with great precision. It cuts perfectly. Oh, it's a weapon and it has power and strength, but it's not used to destroy. It's not used to conquer. It's not used to harm. The word of God is used to bring life every time it cuts. Throughout the New Testament, you read, the word of God is described like a sharp instrument that God uses with great care because he loves us. And every time he applies his word, it has this power to penetrate and pierce and divide and bring clarity like, like, a, like a skilled surgeon with a perfect instrument. This is the vision of the servant. And God sends him into his world to transform lives. Isn't that amazing? Have you ever, have you ever had a moment where you were reading the scripture, I know you have. Some of the most profound moments in my Christian life happen as I'm reading God's word and suddenly there's this moment where I feel as though God has cut me to the core. Not in a violent way, but in a life-giving way where I see myself for who I really am. It's like looking in a spiritual mirror and in God's grace, he, he divides and he, and he cuts and he penetrates and he pierces so that I can see my sin or see my lack of faith and it, and it breathes life into me as a Christian. Do you know those are some of my favorite moments as a follower of Jesus? Have you ever had that experience with the word of God? How life-giving it is. Here's a verse. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. You know this, all you Awanas people. You got stickers for memorizing this verse. I know. Okay, this is a famous one. Hebrews 4.12. Look how he, the writer of Hebrews describes the word of God. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. There it is. And what does it do? It has the power to pierce the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So powerful, so good. The writer of Hebrews says, it's the word of God and it's, it's alive and active. The word of God is anything that emanates from the heart of God. It's the living word, Jesus Christ, the Logos, and it's the written word, which records everything that we need to know about Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says, church, this word is alive and active and powerful and authoritative, and you can build your life on this. You can trust this. But I meet people all the time, and they say to me, it's the same line. I hear it all the time. I can't put my trust in the Bible because the Bible was written thousands of years ago by a bunch of flawed guys. Have you ever heard that? It was written so long ago by a bunch of flawed people. I can't trust the Bible. Do you know that that's actually not accurate? If that was true, I wouldn't trust the Bible either. The Bible was written by the Holy Spirit of the living God. 
as he carried along human authors, divinely inspired to record the heart of God, the truth of God, to represent the son of the living God, the Lagos. The Bible is inspired. God breathed. And a person's confidence as a Christian is directly connected to how confident they are in God's word. Because if you don't believe that the word of God is authoritative and inspired and true, you won't, you'll never be able to stand with courage when the word of God instructs you to do something courageous or something risky or to take a stand for something in our culture that's not popular, you'll doubt the word and you, and you will stop standing in truth and your life will be stripped of courage as a follower of Jesus. I'll never forget my very first day in seminary class at Western Seminary. Kathy and I, one of the reasons we moved to Portland was I, we came so that I could finish my theological training. And one of the first classes I took at Western Seminary was uh, Introduction to Hermeneutics or Introduction to Biblical Interpretation. And it was Todd Miles was the professor. And he stood up in front of the class and I'll never forget it. The very first thing he said, he said, the most important question that every Christian needs to answer about the Bible is this. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? Every Christian has to answer that question. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? And the reason you have to answer that question is because you follow Jesus. And you want to follow Jesus. And you trust Jesus. And you want to trust Jesus. He's trustworthy. And so naturally, you might ask the question, well, what did Jesus think about this book? Have you ever thought about that question? Have you ever worked through that one? Did you know that Jesus quoted constantly from the Bible and every time he quoted it, he called it the word of God? When Jesus faced temptation, what did he do? Did he, did he, did he white knuckle it and make it through? No, he quoted scripture. He quoted the Bible. Jesus said, the word of God will never be broken. Jesus said, I didn't, come to, I didn't come to break the law or the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Not a single dot or iota will fall off ever until it's all accomplished. Jesus said, this is the word of God. He believed 100% in the authority of scripture. And then he calls his followers to do the same. And if you, if you lean into that in faith, you will be filled with courage. Do you want to know why I hold so strongly to the word of God as a pastor? Here's why. Because in my life, God's word has never let me down one time. Not one time have I ever been let down by the word of God. Amen? How about you? You read it and, and, and it speaks to you. When people say, it's so outdated, it was written thousands of years ago, that's interesting because I read it this morning and it pierced my heart and brought truth and wisdom to me. It's alive and it's active. How about you? Right now in your faith, think about your faith journey. Are you, is it feeling like it's not very alive or vibrant? Do you feel like your faith has stalled out? Can I ask you a question? Have you, have you been going to God's word each morning, reading it, asking God, will you speak to me, Lord? Put yourself underneath the authority of scripture and see how much courage God breathes into you, right? 
in your ministry, in your ministry as a community group leader or a river leader or serving somehow in the church, have you felt as though your ministry lacks some authority and some power? Here's a question. Have, have you been building your ministry on the authority of God's word? Do you have God's word open in every context in which you're serving or leading? I have in my Bible a little note card. I keep it in my Bible all the time, every Sunday. I don't remember where I got this quote. I wrote it down a long time ago. And here's what it says. A preacher without a Bible is a preacher without authority. And I just have that in my Bible. And you could take that and fill it in with your thing. A community group leader without a Bible, a river leader without a Bible, a Christian without a Bible is a Christian without authority. Build your life on God's word. Amen. I've pounded that into you now. I'm sorry. Let's move on to the next one. Okay. Jesus, there's a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. That's image number one. Image number two is about light. Will you go back to Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, and look at it with me. Verse 6 begins with an astounding statement. It is astounding. Here's what it says. Basically, what God says to the servant is, it's not glorious enough for you to only be the savior to the Jews. You will not get enough glory for that. You need to be the savior to the entire world. You see that? He says, it's too light of a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Essentially what God is saying is, I didn't send my one and only son into the world only to save the people of Israel. I sent my son into the world to save the world to be a light to the entire world, not just to one people group, but many people groups. It's, it's not glorious enough for Jesus only to be the savior of the Jews. And so we, we read in the scriptures that God opens up space for all people groups, Gentiles, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And this is the heart of God. The heart of God is that the light of Christ would spread throughout our world. Amazing. It's God's heart. It's our confidence as a church. It's why we preach the gospel, right? All of the New Testament writers took this verse and they used it as a justification for their global missions. They believed they were taking light to the nations. And so do we. Jesus is the savior of the entire world. Jesus and Jesus only is the savior, right? But here's the thing, River West. Jesus is the light of the world, but that will not matter if Jesus is not the light of your life, of your personal journey of faith. Jesus wants to provide light in the path right before you. Let me show you in chapter 42 how Isaiah applies this concept. Just turn back to Isaiah 42, in verses 6 to 7, this was the servant song from last week. Christopher preached a a wonderful sermon on this. And we get this vision of Jesus as the light to the nations. and, And Isaiah applies it immediately to people who are in in prison. It's really interesting. Look at verse 6. 
I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And look at this. Why? To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Can I, can I tell you something, River West? Jesus is the light of the world, and what Jesus wants to do is he wants to lead people out of darkness, out of bondage. It's global, yes, but it's also deeply personal. Jesus doesn't want his people, his followers, to continue to stumble in the darkness. So we get this metaphor of being in prison. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metaphor of not being saved. It's like being, it's like having chains and shackles around your feet and you're sitting in a dark prison cell. And you know what? It's really hard to walk with courage when you're in darkness, right? You can't walk with courage when you're stumbling around in the dark. When you can't see, you don't, you don't walk with your chest out and with purpose. It takes away all of your confidence. I remember one time taking my girls to um, these lava caves in southern Oregon. And they were so pitch black. You literally could not see your hand in front of your face. And I have pretty good night vision. Like, I have really good night vision. So I come here early in the morning to the church when it's still dark. And I won't turn on any of the lights because I actually like it better in the dark. And I walk through the church. It's very strange. But anyway, I have really good night vision. But this was a moment where literally we, we all got down in this cave, like 600 feet down in this cave. And we turned off our flashlights. And it was the most eerie thing. You could wave your hand in front of your face and not see a thing. Let me tell you something. You stop walking with courage. You stop walking with courage, right? But here's the thing. I meet Christians all the time and they've been saved. The shackles have fallen off. Jesus has invited them out of the prison cell, out of the darkness. But for some reason, Christians will sometimes tend to go back in and recreate and spend time back there and go back into a place of darkness. Maybe it's an old pattern, an old habit, an old sin. You know when your life gets weighed down with something that you just hate and you know you don't want to do it and you stop walking with courage? You know that feeling? Or you have a, or you have a deep sadness in your life, something that's just happened and it, and it, and it feels like your life is in, in confusion and darkness and you, it's hard to walk with courage in those times. I don't know. Does that describe your life right now? For some reason, do you, do you, would you describe your life more as though I'm, I feel like I'm sitting in a prison cell and it's kind of dark and I don't, I don't feel like I can see clearly? Can I tell you something? Today, Jesus wants to lead you out. I'm going to put a verse up from John chapter 12. I love this verse. John 8, excuse me, verse 12. I want you to read this verse as a promise for your life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a promise, and it's an invitation. This morning, Jesus says, he's inviting you, 
follow me. Don't, don't continue there. It's time to stand up. Have you allowed yourself to sit back down and take those broken shackles and put them back around your wrist for some reason? Jesus says, follow me out of there. Now, sometimes in order to follow Jesus, you have to throw stuff off. You got to repent. You have to walk away from things and you have to turn and with courage say, I'm going to follow the light. I'm going to walk out of this. And Jesus says, I'm inviting you to follow me. And I promise you, if you follow me in faith, you will have light in your path and you'll walk with courage. I'm going to pray about that this morning in just a few moments as we go to the table. Jesus is the, he's the sword of truth. He's the light of salvation. Okay. But finally, and most surprisingly, Jesus is despised. He's despised. Look at verse seven with me. This is the third and final image. And it's surprising. It doesn't seem to fit with the other two. There's this really stark contrast that Isaiah creates where we leave the throne, we leave the dominance, we leave the power, and we, and we step down into the muck. And the Lord says to his servant, the redeemer of Israel and his holy one, he, he says to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. He actually says, you're my servant, and, you're, and, you, and you, you have a sword coming out of your mouth. You, you're bringing truth into the world. You're my servant. You're the light of salvation to the nations. And here is how the nations will respond to truth and light. They will they'll despise it. It will be abhorrent to them. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that how the, the world responds? As you look back at verse 4, it's really interesting. In verse 4, Jesus almost expresses agony over feeling as if his mission has failed. He says in verse 4, I said, I have labored in vain and I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. How interesting. It's as if Jesus experienced in his ministry this apparent failure where he was like, have I, have I done this in vanity? Have I wasted my energy? Amazing. You read this and you think, how is this supposed to give me courage? <laughs> right? Where's the courage coming from, pastor? Here's where the courage is coming. In this life, you will face trouble. And in this life, you will face tribulation. And in this life, because you are a follower of Jesus, people will reject you. And in this life, you may be despised. And in this life, you will spend energy trying to do things for Christ. And, the, and, and there will be times where you'll feel like you've labored in vain. And you might be tempted to be discouraged. And you might be tempted to give up hope. And you might lose courage. I meet parents who labor and labor and labor. And, and it feels like all of their laboring is lost and their children wander. And it's heartbreaking. I know pastors who have labored faithfully in churches and there appears to be no fruit and they get so discouraged. Martin Luther was so 
depressed that because he felt like his preaching was not having an impact. Martin Luther, he stopped preaching for nine months. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Nine months. He was like, I'm sick of these people. I'm not going to preach anymore. See if they ask me back, you know. Took him nine months, apparently. But anyway, you know, Martin Luther got discouraged. The famous missionary, Adoniram Judson, he was a missionary to Southeast Asia, to Burma. He got so depressed because no one was coming to Christ. He pulled out a shovel and he digged his own grave and he stood by it and waited for God to kill him. <laughs> That's how depressed he was. People get discouraged. You labor. And you, and, you, and you look and you go, is there any fruit? I've been sharing my faith with my spouse or with my neighbor and nothing seems to be happening. I've been praying every day for my child or my father or mother and nothing seems to be happening. And you labor for Christ and it appears as if nothing is happening. Appearances can be deceiving. You know what's interesting about Adoniram Judson? He was a missionary to Burma, Burma, which is now modern-day Myanmar. I wonder how encouraged Adoniram Judson would be if he could travel with one of our teams to go meet Nopum and see what Nopum is doing in Myanmar to take the gospel to thousands of people. Nopum traces his salvation back to Adoniram Judson. Aren't you glad God didn't kill him and let him fall into that, into that tomb? Don't give up, River West. Appearances can be deceiving. Even Jesus, the son of the living God, experienced discouragement. He lived a perfect life. He preached perfect sermons. He loved people perfectly. He gave and gave and gave, sacrificed everything he had for the people of Israel. And what did they do? They despised him and they rejected him and they accused him and they murdered him. He hung on a cross for the very people who considered him abhorrent. He could have given up hope, but he didn't. He entrusted his heart to the Father in faith. So Jesus shows us a way through. Are you discouraged today? Turn in faith and say, God, help me to see a bigger picture of what you're doing in my life in our world. We're going to pray about this morning as we go to the Lord's table. I'm going to invite the worship team to come and I'm going to let you go to a posture of prayer. And this morning we're going to go to the table together and we're going to eat and drink. Would you bow your heads with me? Let me pray for you before we go to the table. Heavenly Father, we don't need to look much further than the bread and the cup to see apparent failure, laboring in vain. On that night when Christ hung his head and died, we can only imagine what his disciples thought in that moment. Was this a complete waste of our time? 
What a failure. Only to have you take their breath away on Sunday morning to the power and the reality of the resurrection. God, would you encourage us with that truth this morning? Help us to have eyes of faith. Help us to see beyond what's right in front of us, physical reality. We want to walk by faith, Lord, in this world. We want to walk with courage. We want to see that your kingdom is advancing in ways that sometimes we can't see. It's like a seed that is sprouted. There's power there, but it's difficult to discern at times. Give us the courage, Lord, and the wisdom to keep walking by faith. We pray. I want to pray for those today who have been in darkness, Lord. And I believe with all my heart, Jesus, you want to lead people out right now in this moment as we worship to lead people into liberation and freedom. Give us the courage to follow you, Jesus, the light, we pray. And by your spirit, would you free us from anything, any sin that's weighing us down, any shackle that's tripping us up. Free us, we pray, Lord. And of course, Father, we ask that we would walk out of here as people of your word. We'd build our lives on your word, that we would memorize your word, that we would meditate on it, that we would quote it and draw on it and surrender to it and posture ourselves underneath it day by day, Lord. And that you'd have your way in us through it, we ask. We love you, Lord. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen.